We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 7 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 12. The text is printed there in a bulletin for you if you uh, didn't bring a Bible. Um, So last week, uh, at the end of chapter 6, we considered this question that Ecclesiastes raised. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 12, he he asked the question, uh, who knows what is good for man? Who knows what is good for man? We might think that we know what is good, and then when we see God doing whatever it is he's doing, uh, we get upset and confused and distressed. Uh, thinking about his actions sometimes. So uh, who knows what's good for man? God alone knows what's good for man. And we can trust his judgment above our own. When we look to Jesus, we see that God is trustworthy, uh, even though he works in ways that are uh, they're well beyond our ability to comprehend. God knows what's good for man. And in the scriptures, he tells us a lot about it. He tells us what's good. And that's what we have In our passage, in Ecclesiastes 7, it's a bit of an answer to the question from chapter 6. Who knows what's good for man? God does. Here's some of his wisdom about that. Uh, Let me just prepare you in advance before we read it. Uh, This stuff may not be easy to swallow, but it's good. It's good. So, all right, kids, uh, before we read, kids, we need your help with this. Uh, Because Ecclesiastes says here, um, he says, this thing is better than that thing. He says that a lot of times. And I want you to count all the times that we read the word better. Okay, kids? Better. That's the word you're looking for every time we read it in our passage. <clears throat> Don't look ahead and shout out the answer before we get done reading, really. Uh, just, just keep track of it as we read it. Look for that word better, and I'll ask you about it when we're done with the reading. Uh, but first, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. We pray that you would help us to hear it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vapor. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, kids, how many times do you count the word better in this passage? Go, yeah. Seven. Is that what everybody else got? Seven? Seven, okay. I see some sevens. Okay, good. Yeah, it shows up seven times here. Okay, here's an easy question for you kids. What language did we read that in? Shout it out. What language? English. English, right? 
yeah, English. It's good to be able to read the Bible in our own language. Uh, you probably know the Bible wasn't originally written in this language. It wasn't originally written in English. Uh, the Old Testament, which is where Ecclesiastes is from, was largely, mostly written in uh, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, and the New Testament in the Greek language. So the original Hebrew word here that gets translated better seven times in our passage, that word is tov. It's a pretty basic word. It's a good word. It fundamentally means good. Tov, right? So this is the same word that God used so many times in Genesis 1 in the beginning when he was creating everything and he called it good. He says tov, tov. It's all good. It's all very good. Right? So uh, that word tov or some Hebrew word with tov in its root, some Hebrew word that is based on the word tov, it actually shows up ten times here overall. Not just seven, which are translated better, which we had you count. Uh, But it shows up ten times so Ecclesiastes is asking this question, who knows what is good? Who knows what is tov for man? And here we have a series of Proverbs teaching us this is, this is good, this is tov. This is more good, better, tov, same word, than this, right? Uh, this will make your heart good. It's translated glad here, but can be translated better or good, and so on. So God knows what is good, and he teaches us what's good over and over again in these, uh, in these verses. But what do you think about some of the things that he says are good? We can see that he thinks these things are good. What do you think about what it is that he's saying is good? Is Verse 1, is the day of death really better than the day of birth? Is it really good? Is it really better to go to a funeral than to a feast? Verse 2. Or verse 3, is, it, is sorrow really better than laughter? Or verse 5, is it really better to hear a rebuke than to hear singing? Are these things good? What do you think of God's ideas of what is good for man? Uh, you know, Solomon wrote a lot of Proverbs. Uh, he wrote a lot of the book of Proverbs that we have. Uh, shows up before Ecclesiastes here uh, in the Bible. He wrote a lot of Proverbs that make a lot more sense to us, like Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Yeah, I mean, that, that's easy to swallow. Uh, character, honor, reputation, yeah, those are good things. That makes a bit of sense. That's the kind of stuff you want to teach your kids. And our passage starts off that way. A good name is better than precious ointment, but immediately takes a nosedive. It goes Ecclesiastes on us and says, and the day of death, better than the day of birth. So this Ecclesiastes wisdom is dark stuff, but Ecclesiastes isn't the only one who talks like this. We heard some of Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, um, in our gospel reading that Sheila read, Jesus says, Blessed, happy, divinely happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and the hungry and the persecuted. These don't sound much like blessings to me. Does it sound like good wisdom to you that we're hearing here? Is this supposed to make sense to everybody? Uh, The wisdom that we hear from Ecclesiastes and the wisdom that we hear in the words of Jesus is not the kind of wisdom someone just discovers in this world under the sun. It's not common sense wisdom. It's not stuff that you can just find on your own. This kind of wisdom. 
This is an otherworldly wisdom. This is wisdom from beyond the sun. This is wisdom that has to be revealed to us or else we'd never come to know it. <clears throat> God's wisdom is mysterious. It's strange. It's counterintuitive. It's even unwanted. It's offensive. Right? So Derek Kidner is uh, a commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that uh, it's, it's contrary to the normal outlook. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an understatement. Uh, Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've gotten used to the strangeness and so it doesn't seem quite as strange to you anymore. But it's good to remember that to most people in the world, this is crazy talk. This is is crazy talk. We just happen to believe that God's good wisdom sounds crazy, not because God is crazy, but because the whole rest of the world is crazy. This world's idea of what is good wisdom is so broken that we need God's otherworldly wisdom to come and run against the grain Right? Run, run against the flow, uh, which happens to be quite a disturbing experience for us. God's wisdom running against the flow and cutting across the grain of our regular conception of wisdom. That's a disturbing experience. While we would prefer to be celebrating birthdays and feasting and laughing in order to find some enjoyable meaning in life, say these are the central parts of our life. These are the really substantial parts. Ecclesiastes teaches us that it's It's better to face the inescapable reality of death, the universal reality of death. It's better to meditate on it and take it to heart. It's better to let sorrow and grief have their maturing effects on us. We view death as a threat that is too terrible to contemplate. So Philip Ryken, I'll read a little bit from his commentary here. Uh, He quotes somebody named Susan Sontag, who says, Death is the obscene mystery, the ultimate affront, the thing that cannot be controlled. It can only be denied. So Riken continues, and deny it we do. It's increasingly rare for people to encounter dead bodies or to watch coffins get lowered into the ground or even to mention the word death. The so-called departed pass away or are not with us anymore or go to a better place. Anything except what they actually did, which was to die. It's better for us to deal with death directly, to know that this is the way of all flesh, and to lay it to heart. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. So we're not promoting a morbid fascination with death here, uh, but God says it's better to live in this reality than it is to live in denial or escapism. Rather than uh, push even a thought of death to the periphery of of society, let alone the experience of it and uh, proximity to it, even a thought of death... uh, God says it's better, it's good for us to consider death really as a teacher. It's a teacher. Death teaches us something that here in verse 2, it says the living will lay to heart. It means it's good for us to consider these things and to learn from these things, especially death here. So death is a teacher that Ecclesiastes keeps returning to. We've talked about it a lot already in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we will again. Um, It's a teacher that we can only stand to learn from. When we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only when you have a savior who has has already faced the reality of death square on. Who has won the victory over death and who holds out the sure hope of resurrection. Only then can you also look at death. And face it square on and consider it. And see death not as an end to all things. But as a teacher something that can and should be reckoned with well in advance, something that can inform your life today. So 
Moses prays this way in Psalm 90. He asks God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's wisdom to be had in facing the reality of death. Right, so God says that reflecting on death is good. It leads to wisdom. <clears throat> when you cannot reflect on death in light of the scriptures, when you can't do that, then you're forced to accept death as the natural way of things. But when you trust what God says about death, that it's a result of the fall, that it's a result of our rebellion against God and our broken relationship with God, then you can lament death for what it really is. You can lament the brokenness of a world that's filled with death like this one is. And you can be angry at death for the enemy that it is. Like Jesus is angry at death. We see him that way in the Gospels. And you can thank the Lord that he's defeated this enemy in his resurrection. And he promises to defeat it in our resurrection. When you cannot face death, you have to live in frantic denial and distraction. Your whole life becomes frivolous and meaningless. Because you can't take these things seriously. But when you consider the reality of your death and how you and everyone else will not just die, but you'll go to meet Jesus someday. Considering death in light of the reality of the gospel, you and everyone else are going to meet Jesus. Then you start to take life seriously as an opportunity to know Jesus and to make him known. An opportunity to help others, to spend your life helping others to know Jesus. And then you can say strange things like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, between living and dying. I'm hard-pressed between, that's a hard choice for me. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, he says. Not that Christians want to die. Christians don't want to die. But for us, the main reality about death is that it means going to be with Jesus. That's the main reality about death now for us. Life is good because it means Jesus. Death means more Jesus and more Jesus is better. So when you're too afraid of death even to think about it, your life is dominated by fear. It's lived out of fear. It's motivated by fear. But when you can see that death doesn't end you, but it brings you into the glorious presence of Jesus, then you can be free to enjoy life now, and you can look forward to joy everlasting, and you can live with courage, and you can face death with real courage. And you can help others to face their deaths with real courage through faith in Jesus. When you live in denial about death, you have nothing of substance to offer those who are grieving. You just have empty platitudes. And euphemisms. And it's all warrantless. The platitudes that you have, if you can't face death in light of Jesus, you can't say anything about death in light of Jesus, then the things you have to say about death are meaningless and groundless. But when you have thought about death in light of Christ's resurrection, you can help people to grieve with hope. Not to erase the grieving, but to grieve with hope. This is good wisdom, right? This is good wisdom that we can lay to heart in relationship with Jesus. It's otherworldly wisdom that has to be revealed to us in the gospel, or else we would never come to know it or accept it. 
Likewise, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad, or it's made better, it's made good. No one wants to be sorrowful. Nobody wants that. It's easy to laugh and enjoy a good time. It's hard, and it's, it's painful to endure sorrow. But God, in his divine wisdom, says that it's good for us to be sad. Not necessarily all the time, but at least some of the time, it's good for us. It's not some generic earthly wisdom like adversity builds character. Makes you a very serious person. Sorry, serious persons. (laughs) Extremely serious persons. (laughs) This is the the specifically Christian otherworldly wisdom that says... Those who suffer sorrow have the assurance that Jesus himself knows what it's like to suffer sorrow. He can relate to us. And we have the privilege of knowing what it's like for him to be who he is, for God in the flesh. To live in a world like this, a world full of sorrows, we have the privilege of relating to him. We're granted to participate in the sufferings of Christ, and we're also granted to participate in his resurrection. It's not all sorrow. But the point is, through all this, this enduring sorrow and it being good for us, the point is that we get Jesus. Not just building character. We get Jesus. We don't just become stronger people or more compassionate people. Through our sorrows, our hearts are made better because we get Jesus, because we get to walk through the sorrows in a relationship with him. As Jesus said in, uh, <clears throat> in those Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. His presence is our comfort. Knowledge of him is our blessing. This is good otherworldly wisdom for life that it only makes sense if you belong to Jesus and if Jesus belongs to you. Likewise, verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. No one wants to be rebuked. It'd be great if I were right all the time. Never had to be rebuked. Nobody wants that. We'd rather stop our ears and sing la 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 or turn up the radio and drown out reality with the the levity of music than be confronted with our own wrongness. Wrong thinking, wrong feeling, wrong desiring, wrong acting, wrong speaking, deep wrongness. But God in his divine wisdom says that it's good for us to be rebuked when when the rebuke comes from a good, wise source, when it's truth spoken in love. And here's the ultimate example of this. Jesus came into the world. His very presence exposed our sinful rebellion against God. He came calling us to repentance. Stop. Stop doing what's wrong. Stop being wrong. And he calls us to die to ourselves and to die to our sin. What kind of rebuke is Jesus? To those who've only ever pursued sin and built their identity on sin and held on to their sin for dear life, the call to repentance is painful. It feels like death. It is death. The rebuke that comes from the wisest man who ever lived, that's Jesus. The rebuke that comes from Jesus Christ, it kills us. It kills us to hear it. But he does it so that we may enter into true life, spiritual life, life in his kingdom, alive to God, participating in God's love. 
when the good teacher rebukes us, it can only be good. It can only be good for us. So we'll take it. But this is other worldly wisdom that you wouldn't accept if you didn't know how good Jesus is. And what, what kind of good he wants for us. Likewise, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. In verse 10, the wise do not ask why were the former days better than these. Right, so when you look back over your own past and you remember some, uh, some really good times, or when you look back over history, maybe you think of a certain time as a golden age. Right? And often you find yourself nostalgically yearning for those better times. When you look around at this world, when you understand what people are really like, when you think about your decaying body and mind, the future doesn't look great, right? You have no reason. When you just look with these eyes at this world and these people and me, myself, you know, you, you have no reason to believe that the future will be better than the past unless you know God, unless you've heard his promises, unless you trust that the risen Lord Jesus is making all things new. It's only with the... Uh, otherworldly wisdom revealed by God in the gospel, that you can hope and believe and live as if tomorrow will be better than today, in spite of the fact that your earthly body is only going to fall apart with age. It's only in light of the good news of Jesus Christ that you can be assured that in the new heavens and new earth, each day will be better than the one before it, that you have an eternity to deepen and expand in your enjoyment of God. Even though it's so hard for us to hear and accept God's wisdom, it really is the kind of wisdom that's so good for us. Wisdom for life in relationship with him through faith in Jesus. This is, uh, as it says in verse 11, an advantage to those who see the sun. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. When you live in this world under the sun, looking at it with merely earthly eyes, considering life with merely earthly wisdom, the best you can do is try to cope, try to survive, try not to go utterly mad, but when you see this, this world, when you see all of life, in light of your relationship with Jesus, everything becomes brighter. Everything becomes more vivid, more colorful, because every moment is an opportunity for eternal life. Every moment is an opportunity for abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Spirit-filled, God-centered life with Jesus. Every moment. This kind of wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom, it's like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Right, so apart from a relationship with God, the smartest thing you can do is get rich and stay rich, right? Because it provides some measure of security for your earthly life, some measure of protection. It does. Knowing God knowing his good, otherworldly wisdom, fearing God, which is the foundation for all true wisdom, provides a, a similar sort of protection, but for spiritual life. God knows what is good for you. He's told you what's good for you. It can be hard to hear because it flies in the face of conventional wisdom that's only based on what we can perceive in this world. But if you trust Jesus, if you trust how he makes God's goodness known to you, then you can hear what he, he says. And you can accept it as good wisdom for life with him. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, what you say sometimes sounds crazy to us because 
There are so many things wrong with us and with our thinking and with this whole world. Help us to remember your perfect goodness. Help us to believe it because of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Help us not to live in denial and distraction. Help us to face the most important realities in this life, knowing that you are with us, that you love us, that you forgive us, that you delight to be in relationship with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.